Father God, I ask today that you would send your Holy Spirit anew into this place. Pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear what you would have to say to us. I pray, Lord, that you would use this broken vessel, that you would give me words to speak that matter. Let what what I say that is from you stick, be like seeds planted on good soil, and anything that is not of you, let it just go in one ear and out the other. Today, God, I want to talk in in many ways about what I think you want to do in us. But I worry every time that that I do that or we talk about the possibilities in the Christian life that it can sound like work that we do by ourselves. And so I pray that you would just cover everything that's said with a deep awareness um, that the goal is to drown in your grace. That This is something that you do for us that you enable in us. Help us, Lord, not to speak, to think, to act as if you aren't already in this place. Help us not make the mistake of talking about you as if you weren't here. For our God has already overcome not just sin, but death itself. We believe Jesus has been raised from the dead, that he lives, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are with us even now in this place. Lord, help us to experience that reality this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a word of confession this morning to to start. I didn't know there was an Atlantic time zone. Is that is that is that where I am now? Um, <clears throat> so I have coffee here and water here, and we're gonna just be doing lots of different uh, juggling of of liquids. Um, start with the coffee. The one of the things that I uh, do do I have to do something to get that to turn it on? That's right. You told me about that. Uh, one of the things that I always want to do, Brent gave a, a wonderful introduction, um, but I, I always want to try to sort of set the table, and also, uh, it's really important to me that you learn something that's from God today, but I also want you to like me. Um, and so I think the best strategy for me to do that is not to talk about books or degrees or whatever, but to show you pictures of people that... Um, really represent the most important things I've, I've done in my life, even though I've played a, a pretty small part in, in most of it. Um, my wife, Melissa, um, and that's not her twin, that's our, our oldest <laughs> next to her. Um, my daughter, Bethany, um, she is in first grade. And then my son, James, uh, who is in preschool and ready to start kindergarten next year. Uh, and then there's one more, my daughter, Eden, Um, I knew I would get that reaction. I knew it. Yes. 
Well played. Well played. All right. I'm pretty sure that's the cutest picture of a child that's ever been, been taken. Um, that's, that's Eden, my daughter Eden. Um, she is 20 months old now um, and very proud to be able to hold a plate with a cookie on it. Um, even though we strategically did not let her put like the decorations and stuff on it. That was just too much to handle. Okay, so that's, that's my family. Um, they're, they're awesome. And so now you like me a little bit more than you did five minutes ago. If you could implement one thing throughout the church, what one thing would be most likely to affect the deepest change in the most people's lives? That's what I want us to think about today. Uh, I want to make an argument uh, to you that what you're already um, doing in, in your bands um, is that thing. Uh, and what I want to do in the first part, I'm going to break this up into several, probably about four different sort of chunks um, this morning. In the first part, uh, I want to talk about the history of the, the way that small group formation worked in early Methodism. Uh, and I want, I want you to sort of get a, a basic glimpse of what the key parts of that was and how it succeeded, what it did, how God used it um, in the early Methodist movement. So what one thing would be most likely to affect the deepest change in the most people's lives? The other thing that I want to say to you is that, that I am going to talk about Wesleyan distinctiveness a lot. This is going to sound really Wesleyan, and I think that's good because this is a, a Wesleyan church institution, but I'm also aware that not all of you are members of the Wesleyan church or a part of the broader Wesleyan family. Uh, and to that, I would just say two things. One, it's not too late. Uh, <laughs> Secondly, I would say that, that the goal is, I, I think, in what I find kind of in a postmodern context, uh, particularly in a sort of increasingly non-denominational context, that, that for me, the place where I can speak truth with the most conviction and sort of feel grounded is knowing where I stand within the body of Christ. And so today, I'm going to sort of unabashedly claim my rootedness in the Wesleyan part of the body of Christ. That doesn't mean that I'm trying to say that it's the only part of the body of Christ or that it is the body of Christ. I'm not saying that. It's a part of the body of Christ. So there are lots of other parts of Christianity that are also awesomely Christian, right? So don't, don't confuse that or, or misunderstand what I'm, what I'm trying to do or say today uh, from that standpoint. The way that I, let me shift again because people will often ask, well, like, is the goal to make disciples of Wesley or is the goal to make disciples of Jesus? Well, clearly... The goal is to make disciples of Dr. Watson. I mean, of Jesus, right? The goal is Jesus. Um, that's what's really important. And the best way to think about this is, from my perspective, is the goal should be, for me, if I, the win for me for this is this is what you would all do. You would leave when you graduated Kingswood, and you would sound, when you proclaim Christ, when you offer Christ, you would sound like you had this weird Wesleyan accent. Kind of like if you came to Atlanta and you heard somebody who had grown up in Atlanta, right? You would know they grew up in Atlanta, and they know that I didn't because <laughs> uh, I don't have that accent, right? But when you go to different parts of, of the United States, different parts of Canada, I won't try to do like the embarrassingly stereotypical Canadian accent, right? But there's accents, and you can understand what the person's saying, but you also hear where they're from in what they're saying, right? That's, that's the goal, I think, is to, 
to offer Christ with a Wesleyan accent. So I want to set, set the table with a couple of, of different quotes from Wesley. Uh, this is my favorite, and I increasingly have come to see this actually as a prophecy from Wesley. So this is from an essay he wrote called Thoughts Upon Methodism. And he says, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America, but I am afraid that they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. Canada wasn't even really on Wesley's radar yet. Um, so it was still growing in ways that he couldn't completely understand. But it's amazing that the Methodism as a movement, as something that you would talk about, as something that could have life beyond you, didn't exist prior to John Wesley's birth. Right? So for him, towards the, he says this in 1786, about five years before his death. So for him to say at the end of his life, I'm not afraid that it's going to just go away, is actually says a ton about what God has done during his lifetime in this movement, right? But that he, so he's he's right. Methodism still exists. It's around more than 200 years later. But his concern is: would it be? Would it matter that it was around? Would it be a religion that has the form and power of godliness, or would it just be a dead sect? My background: I'm a United Methodist pastor, and many parts of United Methodism are dead sex. I mean, we, we struggle, to, we're seeking in many ways for the power of godliness, sort of come back to us, finding, struggling to find God in that. So this is the key, I think, is that he's saying, I'm told that I have a magical, yes, I do, green line, the doctrine, spirit, and discipline that he's saying ahead of time to us, pay attention to these things, right? Pay attention to the essentials in this movement and hold fast to them. And I want to talk today about the discipline piece of this, which is, I think, one of the keys to expressing our beliefs. So I believe that the most urgent task for the Wesleyan tradition today is to reclaim John Wesley's understanding of social holiness. Uh, we'll talk more about social holiness in, in a variety of ways um, throughout the time that, that we have today, but I, I want you to just be thinking about that. What is Wesley's understanding of social holiness? What does it look like to reclaim that? Now, here's the one place where Wesley uses the phrase social holiness. I don't know how this functions within the Wesleyan church, but in United Methodism, social holiness is used a lot. It's, like, it's kind of a buzzword, and it's almost always used as a synonym for social justice uh, in a way that divorces uh, kind of an evangelistic heart and a personal relationship with Jesus from outreach. So there's kind of this, been this, this fragmentation which... I think is both unwesleyan ultimately and unscriptural. Uh, but this, so here's the one context. And the background of this is that it's, it's in a preface to a book of hymns and poems that Wesley wrote. And he's basically saying that, he's talking about the desert monastic tradition, which is, is weird. And he's, he's actually talking about it really strongly and a, a bit uh, uncharitably. Wesley could get worked up sometimes. Uh, and I, I, I feel like I have that uh, a little bit in common with him. Can I get too excited, say something a little bit too strongly perhaps? But he's basically saying that the desert monastics, they, they felt like the city where they lived was, was corrupting and it was hard to be a faithful Christian in the city. And so a solution that the desert fathers proposed or found was that they just leave the city, right? Leave people behind and then you don't have the temptations to do the kinds of sins that you do when you're around people. If they're just not there, then you can't do those sins. Um, and so Wesley's analyzing that and, and 
levying a very strong critique against it. And this is where he comes to. So holy solitaries is being a Christian in isolation from other people, you know, sort of metaphorically going into the desert and trying to just go it alone to follow Jesus. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. I can say that because Wesley said it. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. So what he's saying is that we have to be together to grow in holiness. It can't happen without community. It can't happen in isolation. That trying to become holy in isolation is just as fruitful as trying to become holy by pursuing adultery, which he knew, right? He took for granted his audience would know was a really bad strategy for pursuing holiness. It's okay to laugh at that. Uh, So here are the three approaches to how social holiness gets filled out within uh, the, the, the early Methodist approach. The society meeting, the class meeting, and the band meeting. And we're going from bigger to smaller. The society meeting was the group of Methodists in a particular area. They didn't have like Priuses and um, Land Rovers or whatever. And so they had to meet as close together as they could to each other. Uh, and so they, it, and it looks most like a worship service. They meet for reading scripture, praying together, hearing a sermon, if there's an ordained priest present, receiving the Eucharist, um, and so forth. The key question at the society meeting level is, do you want to be saved from your sins? And the general rules, which was the key document of early Methodism, the, it says the only requirement required for someone to join a Methodist society is a desire to flee from the wrath to come to be saved from their sins. So the question is just, are you seeking salvation? There's no other litmus test or prerequisite. You don't have to have an experience of faith in Christ. You don't have to be able to affirm a set of doctrinal tests or, or boundaries, right? It's just that you're desperate to find salvation in Christ then you're, you're good to go as far as the society meeting. And so it's pushing for awakening and repentance. The goal is to help people who are satisfied in sin, who are sleepwalking through life, and it's actually a good dream that they're sort of in the midst of, to help them to wake up and to realize that it's actually a nightmare, that the reality is they're moving towards eternal separation from God, and to help them to recognize that and to turn back to God. So that's the society meeting. The class meeting. Uh, is smaller group. It's seven to 12 people. Men and women were often in the same group, though not always. Attendance was a basic requirement for membership in Methodism. So I want to actually flip the script in a sense. When we think of local church context, right, the, the main mark of membership in the church or the main thing that a member of a church does is what? Bueller. What's that? Show up when? On Sunday morning for worship, exactly, right? That's what a member does at at the most basic level. Well, in early Methodism, the most basic thing that a Methodist did was go to their class meeting. That was the key thing that a Methodist did. That's what defined membership in Methodism, to the point that if you stopped attending your class meeting, then you were removed from the Methodist society. If you missed more than three times in a quarter, in a a three-month period, Uh, then you were just not a Methodist anymore. The key question was, how does your soul prosper? Now, depending on your context, prosperity is, is, it has some baggage today, right? There are some parts of the church um, that preach the prosperity gospel, which I I, I find problematic in in some respects. But what I think is helpful here is that sometimes when we talk about that small group formation should be mandatory for Christians, 
people think that just sounds like a bummer, right? Like people would just, the vision that, that especially nominal Christians or non-Christians have is that we're like, it's a group of people that come together and they're really sad and they're super boring and nobody would really want to be around that group of people. Um, but the question is, how does your soul prosper, right? The, the assumption is that you're thriving in your relationship with God because of a discipline, right? Because of a commitment to a basic practice. It's not for the sake of beating yourself up. It's not for the sake of making yourself feel bad. It's for the sake of thriving as a follower of Jesus Christ. So the deep assumption is that prosperity of your soul is what the outcome of being in the class meeting is. One of the surprises for me as I started studying the class meeting in early Methodism is there's a historian who has spent like years reading popular accounts of Methodists who lived in the 18th century. And he actually found that more than half of accounts of conversions, people coming to faith in Christ, happened in the context of the class meeting. So this was actually a place where people came to faith, right? As opposed to, again, thinking about sort of a large sort of scale revival or a worship service, right? But that it was actually within the context of a nurturing small group. And I think for, for me, this is another place where this has tremendous missional implications for the 21st century church, that perhaps one of the places where people who are truly unchurched would be most likely to come to faith in Christ would be in a more intimate setting of meeting in someone's home once a week and just talking about how is how's your life in God and where it's okay to say it's not good, right? Like I'm still seeking and I haven't found what I'm looking for. Um, I accidentally just quoted you too. Um, and so that's that's one of the things that happens there, right? And that it's so there's two challenges to that. One is a willingness to invest in people's lives deeply, who we don't know, maybe 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 make us uncomfortable, whatever, right? That it it pushes us into vulnerability and intimacy in that way, but also to be comfortable with people who don't have it all together yet, right? To have non-Christians in Christian small groups, right? That that's what was happening in a sense. Um, in the early Methodist movement. And people were coming to Christ, coming to faith in Jesus because of their participation in these groups. The other thing that I want to say about the class meeting is, and th this I could talk about for two hours, don't worry, I won't, but I, I, I would love to, um, is that the curriculum of the class meeting is our lives with God, right? There's not a book that you're studying. Um, there's, not, there's not other questions that you can hide behind. And all that happened in a Methodist class meeting was, each person takes turns answering this question, how does your soul prosper? Or how is your life in God? Right? I think we can absolutely update the question. How are you doing really in your faith? What's really happening? Right? Um, there's all kinds of different ways that it can be approached or addressed. But the key is that it's about transformation, as Brent said at the beginning, not information. Right? It's not about a cognitive approach to the Christian faith. And I think that that's one of the most devastating things that's happened to many parts of contemporary Christianity is that there's been a shift from a transformational approach to the Christian life to an informational approach to the Christian life. That, that many Christians now think that the most important thing about being a Christian is knowing stuff. Uh, that you, what do I need to know in order to be a Christian? Uh, and so the, the sort of com competition for the class meeting historically was the Sunday school movement. And Sunday school started with great intentions, which I don't have time to unpack for you. But as, they sh as it changed, what happened more and more so was it was about delivery of information. And then the hope became, 
I hope that this information communicates something about how we live our lives today, but it, it, it doesn't, in my opinion, it doesn't actually do that very well. Um, but that we oftentimes, as I've, as I've looked at kind of Sunday school literature and, and what I've tried to do to, to be as charitable as I can is to look at the best stuff, because frankly, there's some awful stuff out there. So to just ignore the bad stuff and really focus on the best, uh, and, and I find that, that it still seems to be addicting, that people be, have this kind of addiction to curriculum and to information gathering, that at some level, it seems to me that, that as, as, as pastors, as leaders in the church, that you should be able to help people to figure out what the basics are and then push them to start living, right? Start practicing what they already know instead of using kind of information gathering as a form of procrastinating faithfulness, procrastinating ob- obedience. Uh, I am very confident that the majority of Christians, in fact, I would probably say every Christian, knows more than they're practicing, right? The crisis of Christianity today isn't that we don't know enough. That's a problem in some ways. Biblical literacy is a concern, I, I agree. But I don't actually think it's the biggest problem. I think it's that we're not doing what we know we should be doing. Um, and this is, so the Sunday school movement is, is um, the way that I put it when I teach United Methodist history is I, when I, students look like they're getting tired and I need to say something arresting to get their attention, as I'll say, the Sunday school movement is the cancer that killed the United Methodist Church because it choked out the class meeting and it then helped, it made passive Christians instead of active lay Christians who were leaders in the church, spiritual leaders. Um, so I think that's the, the key. So that's the class meeting. So again, this is for everybody to be a Methodist. I want you to think today about what is a Methodist? A Methodist is someone who's in a class meeting. That's the most basic thing about being a Methodist. And then finally is the band meeting. This should sound familiar to you. This is what happened in in early Methodism. I'm going to ask you later to think about how this coheres or how this connects with what you're doing in your your groups. Bands had about five people, five to seven, sometimes less, rarely a little bit more, but small groups. They're divided by gender and marital status, so married men met in a group, right, single men, and so forth. Uh, The main reason for that division was pastoral, right, because as we'll see what the purpose of the band is, people are going to be able to do that better uh, if they're in uh, appropriate context. And so this is not required for membership, which is also because of, well, it's for two reasons. One, it presumes that you are a Christian. The class meeting, you can still be seeking faith in Christ and be in a class meeting. The band meeting, it makes no sense to be in a band if you're still seeking faith because uh, then, then it would be an exercise in futility because the goal is to overcome sin. Uh, and you don't have the power you need to overcome sin if you don't have faith in Christ yet. So the key question is, what sins have you committed? The most di- uh, difficult question is, so there are five questions asked at every class meeting. Um, the five are, I always misquote them when I try to do it from memory, so I'm going to actually be a, a good scholar and read them to you. The five questions. What known sins have you committed since our last meeting? Two, what temptations have you met with? So notice the way that it, in my experience, most Christians would be like, wait, what known sins have I committed? That's none of your business. Um, that doesn't sound like a group I want to be a part of, but notice how it pushes even like deeper and deeper in. What temptations have you met with? How was you delivered? What have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be sin or not? So there's an opportunity to sort of wrestle with, like I, I've thought about this or I did this, 
And I'm not sure, right? Like I'm conflicted about whether that was sin or whether it wasn't sin. And there's a chance for the group to enter into that and, and to discern that with you. And then finally, have you nothing you desire to keep secret? That's the question that takes the group to a whole different level, right? If you actually ask that question each week and you really answer it, right, that's, that takes the group to a, a new level. Um, and that question, I think, is so threatening that there was a, a republication of the ban rules uh, in the, the 1900s or 1800s, 19th century, that actually redacted that question, took it out. There was just four questions. Um, and so it actually was like, okay, that's, that's a little too uncomfortable. That's, that's too intense. So we'll just take it out. But the point is incredible honesty with each other for the sake of holiness, right? For the sake of growth and holiness. So what sins have you committed? The goal is sanctification and the pursuit of entire sanctification. Confessing sin to grow in holiness. So it's not about shame. In fact, it's, the purpose is freedom from shame, right? The reality of, of sin is that if you, you know, if you come to a band meeting and, and the thought is, or you don't want to go to a band meeting because the thought is, I've done X, and I don't want to tell anybody about that. The reality is you've done that. Right? You, if you have something you don't want to share, not wanting to share it doesn't actually make it not have happened. Right? It's, and so the, the, the struggle with confession isn't a struggle about sin. It's a struggle with how long someone will let sin have control over them that's already happened. Right? How long will you let yourself be in bondage to sin that's already been committed? And so the purpose is confessing for the sake of finding repentance and forgiveness and then freedom from sin. I think that this is the, the key place in so many different ways um, as we think about contemporary practice. Because first of all, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it's very difficult, I think to bring a group of people together and be like, hey, let's confess our sins to each other. And let's ask people if we have anything we desire to keep secret, you know? Um, when I was uh, growing up, there was a period, uh, uh, I still have a lot of, of room, ongoing room for growth and holiness, but I had even more back then. And I used to watch this show called The Real World. Anybody heard of The Real World? Um, and the, the intro was like, find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. Um, and that's like the band meeting, you know? It's like, um, do you have anything you desire to keep secret? Uh, and, and the challenge of this is that, that I, I think that, that Methodism and, and really Christianity at its best has to walk this fine line, right? There's a temptation on the one hand, if we really take sin seriously, there's a temptation to sort of almost have a social pressure to act like it's not something that those who are inside struggle with anymore, Right, that I don't have any sins to confess because I'm a Christian, right? And Christians don't sin anymore. Well, the the, the problem that's that's the goal. I think that that should be articulated as our hope. But the challenge is what happens when somebody does commit sin, right? What's the sort of like rescue plan within the church, not just outside of the church, but within the church for when somebody gets taken out? Do we have a plan in place, a pastoral strategy? For rescuing that person so that they aren't lost, right? So that they don't fall away from the faith. Um, I, I think that especially amongst uh, your generation, that um, at least when I was teaching at Seattle Pacific, what I what I learned from being with students was that, like my parents, people their age and older, especially, went to church because it's what good people do, especially in the states. 
a good American in like the 50s and 60s was somebody who went to church and somebody who went to church was a good American. It was hard to tell the difference between the two. Well, now that's not, that's not the case anymore um, uh, in the rising generation, and, and especially in the United States. That you don't, So if the church isn't doing anything in your life, you don't stay and fight about it or argue about it. You just disappear. It's just like, where did, where did Johnny go, right? It's just gone. Uh, nobody cares about fighting over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary anymore. Um, and so the burden is on the church to figure out how to do what it always has been supposed to do, which is to change lives. Which I, so I think it's good news, ultimately. Um, and it's a, a challenge that I think, I think God has put you all in a context where the broader culture is actually ready to be engaged about the right things. Right? You don't, you're not going to have to spend the time wrestling with superficial, trivial things in the way that maybe generations before had to spend a lot more energy with. But you get to go to right at the heart of what's, what is destroying life in my community, right? And how does the gospel provide the answer to, to that, to whatever it is that's happening? Uh, and when you read the gospels, that's, that's what you see, right? The gospel is the answer to whatever it is that's destroying life, whether it's disease, whether it's demonic possession, whether it's mundane sin, right? That, that the gospel provides the answer that, that Jesus is what people need uh, and the varieties of, of experiences that they, they are wrestling with and uh, engaging. This is biblical. Um, the, the basic practice for the band meeting, um, anytime that there's a, a rule of, of the band societies, it's always prefaced with James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Uh, so that that it, it's scriptural, but also noting the, the context of the scripture, again, it's confession for the sake of healing. That's, that's what we're pushing towards, right? And, and there's, again, so many different ways of getting at this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. First John says, if we do sin, right, that, that First John 2, 1, I'm writing this little children so that you do not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world, right? So that we have the answer um, within our own faith for both what people outside of the church need and for what people inside of the church need uh, when they find themselves living outside of God's will for their lives. Uh, and so the challenge is, it's, is the temptation since, right, Genesis is to hide when we know that we've done something we shouldn't have done. Sometimes we hide by pretending like sin isn't sin, uh, sometimes we hide by not going to our small group um, or we're not praying or whatever it is, right? But we, the temptation is to hide and to put on a mask and act like everything's okay. Um, I believe that revival will come from new generations finding the courage by the grace of God and the humility to own brokenness and to bring it to the cross and to seek healing uh, that only comes through, through Jesus. I think that, that we should be unsurprised, right? If we really believe in sin, we shouldn't be so surprised when we see it, even when it pops up in the church. We shouldn't be like, oh my gosh, we can't address that. Let's just pretend like it didn't happen. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't take it seriously, right? My denomination tends to respond to sort of like, we don't want to throw people under the bus, and so we'll just minimize what's happened. But I think there's room to take with deadly seriousness what's happened, to weep over it without 
throwing the person out of the community, right? With reclaiming them for the gospel, helping them to find release from shame, release from the power of sin. Okay, so discussion question. Uh, I want you to, to talk to each other at your, at your tables and your groups uh, about what I've said so far and just kind of thinking about what's, what's resonated with you about the classes and bands and small group experiences you've had throughout your lives. Because the challenge of sort of dropping in and doing something like this is I have no idea about the experiences that you've had um, in your own lives. So what would you see as experiences? Are there things you've done that are, are similar? Uh, and are there groups you've been in that were really different than, than what the classes and bands were about? Um, and what do you see as the kind of strengths and weaknesses of those? And then I also want you to think about, so, so sort of start there and then that shifts into um, what are the best examples, and maybe the first part is some of these, but what are the best examples that you can come up with, kind of brainstorm together of a contemporary class meeting or a contemporary band meeting? And the purpose is what I want you to wrestle with isn't like a rigid, literal translate, like this is that. You know, I don't, you don't need to look for an orange to find, it's not, it doesn't need to be an orange to orange comparison, but what, if you were thinking about in the 21st century with what's going on around us now, what looks the most like a group where people are talking about the state of their souls? What looks the most like, even with including non-Christians in it? What's, this, what's the, the closest example to a place where people are really wrestling with um, a desire for holiness and ongo- ongoing growth in holiness and confessing sin? Does that make sense? We're going to take 10 to 15 minutes to do that, so go. The conversations at, at your tables... Um, what, what are some of the things that, 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 you, that you talked about with each other? What are some of the best examples that, where there was energy and excitement? What did you all talk to each other about? What does the rest of the room need to hear? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I think that, I mean, so the first thing that comes to mind for me is that in the early church, that's, that is the model that was used. So when um, penance was practiced in, in the early church, it was corporate. It was sort of the church. So um, there was a distinction between menial sins and moral sins. And if you had committed a moral sin, um, the, the way to sort of being re- reclaimed by the, the ministry of the church to be f- sort of fully to have the seriousness of the sin addressed and forgiven, uh, you w- would actually do a, p- a penance that was public in some nature, um, maybe wear sort of particular clothes that sim- signified that you were a penitent. I think in our, our own context, that would, that would very much feel to most people like a shaming thing. I don't think it was actually intended to be shaming in the early church, but was intended to be a way of identifying these are the people who particularly need the body of Christ interceding on their behalf for the mercy of God and for finding a sense of pardon for what they've done, which they already know was wrong and they already feel shame about. Um, I think that, I, I, I mean, I think it's a very interesting question. I think for me, um, based on my own background and experiences, um, I think it would be, it seems to me that it would be 
so difficult to have a church that actually had small groups that were confessing sin to each other within a, a sort of safer group of, you know, two or three other people. Um, it's hard for me to imagine just at, at the practical level. I think, I think it's the right question to ask, and I don't, I don't want to sort of just totally punt on it. Um, but I think for me, I find myself kind of going back and forth between what the ideal is and what, what's most likely to, to, to work in our current time and space. Um, and I think, again, my own experiences, most, most of the churches I've been in, you know, really exemplify the kind of wheat and weeds parable. And so it's, there are so many nominal Christians that it's, it wouldn't actually be a place where I would even feel comfortable um, entering into the, the community with that much transparency and that much vulnerability um, because I don't think the community would be capable of handling it, capable of holding it well. Whereas I think that in, in smaller group contexts, um, that you can you can have the, the a, sort of a deeper degree of maturity, hopefully, and 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 care for one another. Um, that's 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 my two cents. But I think I think it's it's a it's a good question, and I think you're right about what the context of, of James five seems to be pointing pushing towards, um, the, the the greater ideal of who we we are called to be. Other thoughts, other things that came up about um, kind of contemporary examples. How would could somebody talk to me a little bit about? how the, the groups that you're in, the bands that you're in, are similar and different to what I said about what was happening in the 1700s in band meetings. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so am I am I hearing then that that in ba in the bands that you all are in that there is a sort of a ideal and an experience of an ability to actually go there, like to go to the deep places that that people need to to go to to talk about what's really happening, even if it's not good. Is, is there's an ability to actually like confess sin, like really talk about what's happening in in your life? Yeah, I see lots of heads nodding. Um, it, Maybe maybe not not perfectly, but that that's yeah. Thanks. Anybody else have anything they want to to add to that? Yeah. Well, I think that the difference between the historic band groups and our current band groups would be like within the formation process. I think historically the people probably knew each other more, whereas as opposed to. 
think there's an obligation to not defend things or some like sometimes not even deal with the people. And uh, I wonder if if you live in a time where there's less traveling and you just know people in your community, if there's more apt to uh, go and do things than as opposed to just doing what you're supposed to because you can just get somebody else's attention. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think one of the big challenges, sort of meta challenge, is, I mean, I, 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 one of the reasons I think this is the thing, if I could, you know, if I was given the power to do one thing in the church that would happen broadly, the reason it would be, you know, the, this sort of whole thing I'm talking about, about Wesleyan small group formation, is because I, I think that the, the deep need that many people have today that isn't being met is a need for community, like, deep, authentic community. Um, and part of that for me is, is, is autobiography. I mean, I, we've moved a lot lately. And so as, as somebody who this is like an academic area of expertise and a passion to try to connect it to practice, um, I still experience in my own life every time we've moved um, that it's very difficult, you know, to, I, I don't remember what the number was, but there was a study that talked about, like, the number of hours to form, like, an intimate friendship, and it, I think it was something like, I mean, thousands, I, th I mean, it was, like, a lot of hours, you know, it's not just like, hey, let's have coffee, and then, boom, we're besties, um, and I think that, that college is interesting because the, when you live together, and so there actually is a kind of, like, you know, it's like you can have warp speed friendship, and 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 when you're in this context, that is is harder to have when you are in the the real world, so to speak. Um, when you don't live together, right? When you you live separated from each other, and kind of part of what you're getting at. And I think that's a huge challenge: is how does the church um, have a hard headed kind of realism about what people can do and will do? Um, but sort of pushing into what, what people need isn't really more programs. What they need is a family, right? They need a faith family where you, you're really doing life together and you're figuring out how to come alongside each other, even when some of the people you're coming alongside of aren't cool or they make you a little bit uncomfortable or right, whatever it is. Like, that's the challenge. I was um, at, my brother got married over Christmas break when we went back home and, and I was thinking about how there's some, it's not me, but there are some really weird people in my family. Um, and, but, but they're family, right? So I don't just get to be like, when, you know, my brother never considered like, well, we're not inviting that person to my wedding because they're just a little too uh, interesting um, because they're family. And, and I think the, the challenge for the church is to, to embody that kind of familial understanding as thoroughly as we can. And and the, the extent to which the church is consumeristic and caters to consumerism, the harder it is to actually embody a familial understanding of the body of Christ because that's not, that doesn't appeal to consumerism. If you're being a consumer, you don't go pick to have the weirdo be your uncle. You pick to have the cool guy who will, you know, whatever it is a cool uncle does, right, gives you a gaming system for Christmas or something, right? That's who you pick to be in your family. And uh, so there's this this the kind of rootedness of, of sin um, that I think shows up in even in the ways that we kind of don't want to be in community with some people and want to be in community with other people that we think will help us. Um, and so I think for, for me, kind of the big question is you thinking about how is it that you can help to knit together a community that creates the kind of intimacy for people to be able to go to these deep places? 
Because uh, I, I actually don't think, I think the instinct that people have that tells them this isn't a safe space is oftentimes a good thing. That's oftentimes a sane response or a sane instinct that they have that sometimes it's not a safe space to go all in. Um, a big challenge that a lot of, of I mean, for Wesley, it was presumed that this is confidential. You're not going to talk about it, you know, to your neighbor after you get out of your group. Um, and there are a lot of people who are too immature to maintain confidence. And, um, and so I think that that's, that's one of the challenges. Um, I wrote a book on the class meeting and kind of how to try to reclaim that practice um, in, in our current context and kind of created this, like, step-by-step -step <laughs> ramping up. Because in my context, people don't talk about their lives with God. And so part of my burden is to try to help people develop a vocabulary for talking about their faith, and hopefully that seems strange to you. Um, but there are a lot of United Methodist churches where if you say to somebody, how is your soul, um, they, don't, they, don't, they kind of stutter and struggle to, to figure out how to say something articulate about what God is doing in their life. And so kind of walking through that process. Um, and I think that it's, it's, it's a challenge to kind of help people to find the space to, to, to do that and, and to do it well. Other thoughts or, or comments or questions? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think that that I would say um, in the ideal, you would have people joining both groups as soon as they are expressing the kinds of heart cries that, that fit those groups, right? So um, if, a, if a middle schooler is like desiring salvation, then they should be offered the opportunity to be in something like a class meeting, right? I mean, whatever the age is. Um, I, think, I think that, uh, I, I can, I don't know, I'm, I'm struggling in a sense for sort of how wide the age range would be, because I, I can see it both ways in a sense. I think that one of the things that, that often makes me sad about contemporary worship services, even though there's a lot that's great about them, is how they kind of are become a kind of generational segregation, um, where younger people miss sort of being mentored and receiving the wisdom of people who are sort of grizzled veteran Christians, which have a lot to offer, right, and have, 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 have been through a lot and, and have wisdom to share. Uh, so I think particularly um, as, as people are really growing in maturity and pressing into faith, then it's, it's helpful to have opportunities to engage people who have, have, are farther along than you are. Um, somebody once in, a, in a, a, a kind of more popular book on method, I was actually on the whole church, but they were talking about like the distinctiveness of each tradition. And they had this, I thought a really lovely vision for Methodism was something like, people, the vision is, you know, moving towards entire sanctification, so becoming more and more like Jesus, and the vision is kind of going up this hill in a sense, and that part of what Methodism is trying to do is that each person, it's almost like a, a human chain up the hill, and each person is holding on to a one, somebody who's farther ahead than they are, but they're also reaching back and helping somebody who's not as far ahead as they are to, to move forward. Um, and I think that's that's something that's 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 helpful in, in bringing together people with different kinds of wisdom and experiences. But it's also not as straightforward as it being just about age, right? Sometimes the most wise and mature Christian in the group, um, you know, may not be able to grow a beard yet <laughs> or whatever, right? That there's there's a, a bunch of ways um, that 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 yeah that that connects. What about um, I want to I wanted to 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 spend 
two minutes on on um, one other thing, and then we're going to take a, a stand-up break and get more sugar and caffeine and stuff. Um, uh, what about the what? I want to hear you talk to me about what about the the concern that somebody is like, okay, so this is what we do, and we go we do go all in in a band meeting, and we tell we answer the questions forthrightly, but we're basically saying the same thing every week. What do you what do you do with that? What do you think? I mean, do you think that's a problem? And how would you sort of thinking on your feet? How would you speak into that? So say say there it's it's conceivable in our in our t- current time and place, right? That you could envision a hypothetically a group of young men who meet in a band meeting, and somebody every week talks about looking at porn that week, right? That it's like and they they're honest about it, they confess it, but they do it week after week after week, yeah. Wow, <laughs> thank you. Um, I love the way, I mean, that was just a, a beautiful answer. I love the way that you prefaced it with if you love them, right? That, that I think that's, that's where it starts. Um, that a lot of times, this is the way I try to sort of reverse the script in a way because sometimes we think, I don't want to say something that's judgmental to this person because I, I want them to feel like I love them. Um, but sometimes we we except maybe unintentionally or unreflectively a pretty shallow understanding of what love really is, right? Um, and that, that real love is going to say, this is, I know this is not God's will for your life. I know that it's producing fruit that doesn't look like righteousness in your life. And because I love you, I'm going to refuse to accept less than what God wants for your life and refuse to be in denial with you about what's at stake for you about, in your life. Um, so I love starting with with I love starting with love, <laughs> um, but I also appreciate the part of this. I think is for me I, I I have this vision of the church wrestling with sin and all the ways that it sort of pops up, right? That the ways that it sort of occurs, and so I said before, not being surprised when we see sin, but I also think that it connects to. Uh, I think I just did something with the, oh, it's over there. Um, I thought I was messing with the remote in my pocket. Um, but that but that sin also, taking it seriously means being able to recognize when it seems to be more than just, right, like somebody cut me off in traffic and I did something I shouldn't have done in response because I had a moment of deep anger and frustration, right, That I, and I need to own that and confess it and then, move on, but the sort of le- bringing in the category of addiction, um, and that addiction is uh, something that changes, right, things. 
uh, that addiction means at some level, this has a power over me that I don't have over it anymore. Uh, and so if I am genuinely desiring to turn from this, but I'm returning to it over and over again, right, like a dog returns to its vomit, um, then I need help to go, I need other resources, right, to go farther than that. And I, I, I really do believe that in a sense that this is, to me, this would be one of the signs of revival is churches that help people to actually get real help for real addiction um, instead of just like kind of covering it up, but saying like, this is ugly, this is sin, this is not okay. And the reason that it's not okay is because God loves you, right? God is not okay. God's not going to, God is almighty, all powerful, and his hands aren't tied when you have bound yourself to addiction. Yours are, but God's aren't. And so we're going to continue pressing in to doing whatever needs to be done because we believe that complete freedom, even from actual clinical addiction, is available um, because of who God is in Christ. Um, but that requires being willing to, to go in, in, in places that are, sometimes are uncomfortable, sometimes are, are, in some contexts, seem socially unacceptable. Is it okay to go to counseling? Is it okay to, to go to a treatment center, right, and still be um, embraced by the church? Um, and if the church is, isn't a country club, but it's a hospital for sinners, um, then it, it, it makes complete sense. It's a sign of victory that people who are addicts are being helped by the church to find uh, recovery and treatment of even the most devastating and, and, and difficult of things. Okay, let's take a break. Uh, I'll give you 10 minutes to stretch and, and do what you need to do, and we'll start, start back. Two, I will be coming back up. We do have more of the journals. So for some reason, you didn't get one. Um, if you're wanting, some people actually were wanting to buy them outside of that. I think they're five dollars down at the admissions. If you're wanting an extra one or a few for like note taking, we do have some extras of that. But just as a, a cool little thing, if you have it with you, there's a little pocket right in the back, right here. You see this? There's a little pocket back there. So you could put this with the reading plan right into that pocket right back there. I know. Have it there with you all the time. Blew your mind. All right. Thank you, guys. Let's give it back up for Dr. Kevin Watson here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Good job, good job. Okay, <laughs> I'm just pandering now. Okay, um, that I wanted to just really quickly. You guys came up with some some great examples uh, already, but the, here are a couple of, of to show you I did my homework. Um, uh, contemporary examples of of this in practice. So the class meeting I think is a, is the easier one to come up with examples of how it's functioning today. So the best example I think kind of brought like as far as influence is a church called Life Church, which is uh, a church that started in Oklahoma, uh, so it's my people, um, and the, the campus pastor, Craig Rochelle, who's uh, now, you know, is, Life Church is one of the, if not the largest churches in the United States, um, but he was a United Methodist in Oklahoma uh, and wanted to start a new church, and the Oklahoma Conference at that time didn't have the vision for letting some young person who might not know what they were doing, start a new church. And so he basically just left the conference and did it on his own. And so it, it became a kind of 
free church, non-denominational church, and then actually came back to the Evangelical Covenant, which is a denomination that's that's most uh, biggest kind of on the in the Pacific Northwest, um, but interestingly still shows kind of his Wesleyan influence. So the the their mission to lead people to become fully devo- devoted followers of Christ, that's it. Lots of churches say that, but they don't do as good of a job necessarily having a, an actual strategy or a plan for living that out. Uh, and one of the core things to, to life church is what they call life groups. So good, consistent branding. Um, but basically what you do in a life group is you talk about your life. You talk about what's actually happening in your life um, as a follower of Christ. And it's it's not exactly right the same thing as what happens in a class meeting, but it's really close. And we actually had friends uh, when I was pastoring in Oklahoma in another town, friends of my wife's from college, uh, who went to a life church and then she eventually was on staff. And every time we would hang out with them, that's all they wanted to talk about, it seemed like, was their life group. They didn't really care about talking about the church itself that much. They wanted to talk about the community that they had found in the small group that they were a part of. Uh, and so this is one of the, the key places and is, is kind of a, almost a cliche now in talking about um, the broader church, especially the kind of growth of mega churches, um, that churches grow bigger by growing smaller, right? Um, that they, the, the more kind of ability there is to develop an, an actual community of people who know you, who are doing life with you, um, that that's a, a key piece. Uh, so this is one of the, the core strategies uh, for Life Church. Munger Place Church, this is my favorite example because this is a, a former student of mine. Uh, I don't feel like I'm old enough to have former students, but um, somehow I do. Uh, the first time I taught United Methodist History, I did all this stuff about how uh, awesome the class meeting was. I didn't even tell you any of the numbers, but the, the one thing I'll tell you is that from 1776 to 1850 in the U.S., the Methodist Episcopal Church was in 1776 the second smallest denomination in the U.S. Uh, by 1850, like 2.5% of religious adherents were Methodist. By 1850, it was like 35% were Methodist. Uh, and the next closest group was were Baptists, and it was 20%. So they were the biggest by far, like by, I mean, by a ton. Um, outgrowing the population pretty dramatically. Uh, and I, I actually think that it's one of the top three most dramatic growths of Christianity in the history of the church. I would say early church, Pentecostalism, uh, and then early Methodism in America. Uh, explosive growth. And the class meeting was a mark of membership in the church, not just when it was a renewal movement in England, but when it was actually a church in America, you had to be in a class meeting to be a member of Methodism. So I, 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 my students often didn't know if I was preaching or teaching in class, uh, and the distinction wasn't that important to me necessarily. And so I was preaching about the importance of class meetings, and he had the opportunity to start a new church. It was a relaunch, uh, and they made kitchen groups, is what they call them, a kind of core membership expectation. Uh, for their kitchen groups. And they've been embraced enough by the people at this church. This is a church in East Dallas, uh, and it's, it doesn't snow like this in East Dallas, if you don't know much about Dallas, Texas. Uh, it kind of looks more like that <laughs> than, than it does out there. Uh, but in, in they, the church had declined so much that they couldn't even afford to turn the air conditioning on in August, which again, in East Dallas, that's a really big problem. Uh, and so the conference closed the church down, but instead of selling the property or just totally getting rid of it, they just closed it for a while and they restarted it with the help of another church in the area. Uh, and they, they made these kitchen groups an expectation of membership. This dead church in East Dallas 
has for the past three weeks in a row had more than 800 people in worship. Uh, and part of the, the thing that they talk about a lot in that church is um, these kitchen groups. Uh, and the reason they call them kitchen groups is to, to denote a kind of intimacy, right? That, that you sort of, when you think about a house and hospitality, it's in the kitchen where like the real conversation happens a lot of the time, right? While you're doing meals together and like that's where there's actual like, how is like, how, is, how are things going with your, your husband's surgery or whatever, right? That's where there's kind of the time and the space where there's these kind of uh, beautiful uh, conversations that, that go deeper. So Munger Place is a, a great example. And then my former institution, uh, or the seminary at the seminary level, class meetings are from the beginning of this, uh, the seminary restarting about seven years ago. Uh, you have to be in a weekly class meeting uh, to, be, to be a student at the seminary. So, and I, I was just telling... Uh, Brent, that I will, will add Kingswood to, <laughs> to this list when I speak at other places. Because the problem is there aren't very many examples of band meetings. If, for me, if I want to say, where is this happening now in the church, um, especially within kind of the Wesleyan family, it's hard to find examples. Um, I would say that the best example is actually Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step groups, which is why I think the connection to um, you know, thinking about addiction is helpful because in 12-step groups, you, you're talking about what's actually going on in your life, whether it's pretty or whether it's not, uh, and you're, you're, you're going deep. It's by no means a, a, a great, you know, it's not, exa- it's not at all synonymous, but it's a place where people are doing life together and they're entering into the depths of their own brokenness and each other's brokenness for the sake of finding healing, for the sake of finding recovery, as they would put it, right, and, and, and freedom from something that has control over them. So those are some of my examples. So the world is desperate. You probably know by now that this is something that I, I think is important for leaders who can help women and men live into this understanding of social holiness. So I want to say a little bit about what social holiness is. I, I briefly kind of flagged it. Um, but I, the first thing is, as I already said, it's not a synonym for justice. Um, that doesn't mean, hear me, that doesn't mean that justice is irrelevant to social holiness. It just means that it's a part of it. It's a part of something much, much larger than that. Uh, and it's a communal endeavor. That's why it's social, right? It's, um, it, it's something that we, we do together with each other. And then it has internal and external components so that social holiness is a matter of the heart, right? It, it, it involves prayer and it involves, would involve both praying communally, that that's a serious practice that's happening in the community, but also praying individually, right? Wesley talked all the time about, uh, especially to his ministers, about do you rise at, you know, crazy early times and spend an hour or two in prayer every day? Um, and uh, those kinds of things, so that it's, it's, it's an individual, private experience at some level, but that it also it, it brings it out into to other aspects, and that it's external as far as like, it's not just about me and Jesus, but it's about the way that I engage a broken and hurting world because of what God has done in my life. The ways that I am reaching out in mission uh, to other people beyond me. Uh, the general rules, I think, provide a, a good model. So I said earlier that this sort of addiction to information, um, I would, would sort of press that, that, to put it really strongly, um, and I always am worried that I sound anti-intellectual when I put it this strongly. I, I'm not. Um, but I, I think that you should be able to have a conversation with somebody over a cup of coffee. And you should be able to tell them the basics of what they need to know about being a Christian. 
right? If somebody's like, I want to know about what you believe and how to become a Christian, you shouldn't, your, your instinct shouldn't be, okay, give me five years, right? Like that shouldn't be the go-to mode, which I think in many churches, that's not what you would say to somebody, but there's kind of this sense that like, okay, well, that's going to be really difficult and we'll just start you with this one book and we'll read through that in a small group and, uh, and so forth. But that it sh- you should be able to, to, right, to jumpstart the thing over a cup of coffee. And a good example of that in, in early Methodism is the general rules. Wesley wrote literally thousands of pages of stuff, published a ton. So it's not that he didn't think there was a lot of stuff you could develop and talk about and that was important to say, but the sort of key thing that Methodists would always come back to was the general rules, which is like two pages. Uh, the general rules are do no harm, and then he lists out what do no harm is. Uh, this is, again, a challenge in, in my context is being precise about what sin is. But that's something that there's no alternative, right? If, you're not, if you don't get specific about what's, what is sin and what isn't sin, then you're, you're not actually engaging something, you know, you're, you're sort of disembodied in, in your pursuit of holiness. So do no harm. The way that I think about this is that you can't begin to make progress in the Christian life until you stop doing things that bring you farther and farther away from God. Um, I, this, this became real for me as an illustration when I lived in Seattle. Seattle's really hilly. Uh, I fortunately don't drive a standard, but if I did, right, there's the first thing you have to do if you come to the, a stop at the top of a hill, but you're not actually really at the top of the hill, kind of at the top, is you have to stop going backwards, right, before you can then go forward. Uh, and that's the few times I've driven a stick, what I would do is like kill it and then kill it again and um, people start honking, which really helps you to not panic when you're struggling. <laughs> so that's why I don't, don't drive a standard. So you have to stop going backwards, stop making the problem worse, right? Uh, secondly, do all the good that you can. And then Wesley breaks this out in very specific concrete acts that are acts of justice and mercy towards others, right? Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those that are sick and in prison, right? That these are, are basic parts of being a Christian, uh, and so for Wesley, then, then the third thing, and then I'll, I'll tie, the, tie it together, attend upon the ordinances of God, which is an old school way of saying practice the means of grace. Uh, Wesley makes the distinction between instituted means of grace and prudential means of grace. Instituted means Jesus said do these things. They're instituted by Christ. So, you know, if you're playing sort of theological chess, checkmate is getting to Jesus, right? Well, Jesus said to do that, so... Um, you have to pray because Jesus said when you pray. He didn't say if you feel like praying. He said when you pray. Uh, so prayer, uh, searching the scriptures, receiving communion and fasting are always the practices Wesley lists as instituted means of grace. Uh, the, the fifth that is sometimes listed by Wesley that I actually think has been, we haven't made enough hay of as, as in the Wesleyan family, is actually what he calls Christian conferencing, which is basically small group formation. It's It's it's, talking, it's basically what we're talking about today. Uh, so he actually makes this bold move where he's saying that is a basic practice that is commanded by Christ and is a, a, a part of the fundamentals of being a Christian uh, from his perspective. So the basics then are to, to be in relationship with God, stop sinning, express concretely acts of, that show love towards your neighbor, right? And express concretely things that, express an intention for a desire to grow in love for God, which 
is a way of filling out the greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is a just a practical way of fleshing that out, of talking about how that actually works. So that Wesleyans, the, there's been a, a tendency, when you look at the history of Methodism, there came around the time of the Civil War, and, and then even more so in the next 50 years, kind of a parting of ways of these two things. I actually think that the Wesleyan Church is one of the best examples of resisting this fragmentation uh, in its own history. But a, a separation of kind of which one are you in favor of, right? Are you in favor of a relationship with Jesus or are you in favor of making the world a better place? And that there's kind of this pressure to pick which one you're in favor of. Um, and that the, I, I wrestled with that in seminary because when I, the seminary that I went to, uh, there was, there really, I felt that pressure. I felt this kind of like, you're supposed to pick which team you want to be on. Uh, and I finally got to the point where I was like frustrated with how good of arguments both sides could make in a sense for their position. And I realized that's because they're both biblical. Uh, so if they're both biblical, why am I picking between one of them? Uh, and, and then for me in taking a Methodist history class, it was helpful to see that Wesley would have been appalled at the idea that you would just say, well, which one do you decide that you want to be in favor of? And then you can be at worst opposed to the other one or just ignore it. But both are a part of what holiness is about. Social holiness is about your relationship with Christ. It would make no sense to think about holiness devoid of a personal relationship with Jesus, but that real holiness is always expressed, right? Jesus talks about fruit, right? There's going to be fruit to a holy life that other people can see and that actually has an impact and blesses other people's lives. So the whole social holiness is best embodied. I'm actually going to skip that question, I don't, so don't read that, in a set of, of concrete practices where we come together. Uh, what I want to do then and is I, I want to create some, there's a glare, a little bit of time for question and answer. So be thinking about uh, the, and I really, I want to know what are the things that, so I'm going to tie this up, and then I want to see what, your reactions to this are, if you have questions for me or things that seem problematic about what I've said, if you want to push back, um, my sort of approach in these contexts is to come at you and then to let you come back at me if you want to. So I'm, I'm happy for you to say this, this doesn't make sense to me or I'm, I have a question about this and um, to go back and forth. So, so I've planted that seed and I'll let it germinate. Uh, the way that this is all connected then theologically, so Wesley talks about, we talk, at the beginning we had this one of my favorite quotes, right? The, the importance of doctrine, spirit, and discipline. The discipline for Methodism, these practices, is an intention to embody in a concrete way our belief in entire sanctification, ultimately. That's what it's ultimately pushing towards. So, in the United Methodist Church, to get ordained, when I was ordained, I was asked a series of questions. One of them was asked, are you going on to perfection? And then I was asked after that, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? In many United Methodist contexts, this is asked in the clergy session of the annual conference. When those two questions are asked, the pastors laugh because they're kind of, it's, a, it's one of those, you know, awkward laughter, not like, haha, it's a hilarious joke that you just told, but like, they're uncomfortable that the new, you know, the fresh meat of the church is being forced to a- answer these questions, because obviously you have to say yes. Um, and I almost, I literally almost cried because that did happen the year that I was asked these questions. Um, because I feel like those are really important questions that are part of our tradition, the whole Wesleyan family's tradition. And I was answering them with 
conviction and, and faith that this is something God actually wants to do. Um, it wasn't, have you been made perfect in love, but do you expect? There's a huge difference in the way that that's phrased as far as how you can answer that question, I think. And for me, it's sad because I think that Wesleyan, so if we are who we are supposed to be within the body of Christ, I'm going to argue that there should be nowhere in the church where there is a people who are more optimistic and bold about what God wants to do in your life. That there should be nowhere where there's a more optimistic articulation of what grace is able to do in your life. Uh, my favorite thing to do in, in both undergrad and, and graduate context is to talk about entire sanctification because it, it, it almost never, in my experience, gets a good hearing. Um, I've heard probably a dozen preachers say in sermons something like, nobody's perfect, and then kind of like um, move on without thinking about what it is that they're, they're communicating uh, when, they, when they say that. Part of this for me is, is a connection to, you know, it connects all these different things, but the resurrection, right? Christians believe that God in Christ has already overcome sin and death. Uh, so we have to wrestle with the sort of like oftentimes implicit theology that says that sin is necessary somehow, not only prior to coming to faith in Christ, but that it's necessary as a part of the life of faithful Christians, that it's something that has to be a part of our experience um, as Christians. And I think that, that, that there oftentimes are overly simplistic ways of just kind of saying, well, when you become a Christian, it's just not a problem anymore. That's one approach that folks have had. Um, and then other people would just say, well, of course it's a problem because nobody's perfect. Well, there's a huge kind of middle road that can be uh, addressed. And I don't think, the way that I would always push, SPU actually had, a, it was a free Methodist school, but it had a large percentage of uh, more reformed students um, and I would always sort of engage, and they, and they pretty strongly resisted this, this idea that you could actually come to a place of experiencing. The way Wesley defined entire sanctification was love excluding sin. Uh, so a point where you come to an ability to love God and, and others to the exclusion of sin. So it is about not sinning anymore. And they would, some students would push back strongly on that. And I would finally get to say, and I would say this to you too, you have to decide what you believe ultimately is more powerful. Do you believe that sin is most powerful, or do you believe that what God has done in Christ is most powerful? If the resurrection really is about the complete defeat of sin and death, then sin's not necessary anymore. The Christian life isn't a life of futility. It's not a life of doing the best that you can but just banging your head against a wall over and over again. That's not what we should be offering people explicitly or implicitly. But we should be offering them actual hope and actual healing um, from whatever it is that is consuming their lives because we believe in a God who hates sin and who loves us and has done everything that needs to be done to make it possible for us to find the healing and transformation that he desires for us. This is the way Wesley would always you know, kind of go back to, is it promised in Scripture? If it's promised in Scripture, then God must be able to do what God promises. If he's able to do it, do we believe that he actually does it? Well, if we believe in the abstract that he does it, do we believe that he does it now? And that's where he would push on. It's not about you. It's not about works. If it's about you and your goodness, then you can make your excuses about why X, Y, and Z needs to happen before you can experience complete freedom from sin. But if it's about faith, and Wesley's always clear that just like justification, sanctification is by faith. 
If it's by faith, he says, you can expect it as you are and you can expect it now because it's about who God is and what God is able to do, not who you are and what you are able to do. So by the grace of God through faith in Christ, we can expect to be freed to love God at the exclusion of sin. So this is, to me, the kind of the big takeaway that I I would hope to leave you with, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have real hope and real healing to offer to people who are desperate for both. And the reality is that in the world, there are lots of broken and hurting people, right? That's that's the norm um, for human experience. It's expressed in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, But there are people who are desperate for real hope and real healing. Some people have socially acceptable sins, and their lives are being, um, you know, Henry David Thoreau said the live, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. So there are people who have kind of socially acceptable lives of quiet desperation, and then people who are just totally falling off the rails. I'm not sure the difference is that significant to God. Um, he wants to reclaim both um, for, for himself, for his glory. I think it all starts with a commitment to watch over one another in love. I think that one of the reasons that the church isn't um, more effective in doing what God calls it to do is because we oftentimes are just unable and unwilling to enter deeply into each other's lives and to help form a church that understands the importance of doing that. Um, my experience is that when people taste this, when they taste it as it's supposed to be, they want more of it and they want to share it with other people. Uh, and so I, I hope that that's your experience of it um, and that it's it's something that will be a blessing to you. So the, the, the question to leave us with is, what will we be known for? You know, will we, the United Methodist Church is trying really hard just to not split. Um, but I don't know that that's what God wants the United Methodist Church to be known for. Um, what, is, what does God want you, what does God want your generation, your church, your community to be known for? To be known for people who, you know, did a little bit of good or people who, you know, dropped a grace bomb on their community, right, and drowned their community in the amazing grace of God and turned it inside out, um, what will we be known for? We already have the practical tools that we need. Uh, will we implement them, I think, is the question. So what questions or comments do you all have uh, for me in the, looks like we have 15 minutes left. Yeah. Yes. Um, Wesley, in, in his writings, clearly differentiates between the two, and I think people don't always do that well. So that he says, you know, somebody can be, you can entertain the possibility of sinning and be entirely sanctified. The entirely sanctified person would never act on that temptation. I think the other, the other piece, too, to that question is that people also get lost in Wesley never said that once you, if you experience entire sanctification, that it's like that uh, this wall goes up where it's impossible to ever sin again. Um, that it's actually possible to, you can will to, to love that which is not God and commit concrete sins and no longer be entirely sanctified. So it's not like a sort of, you've, you've become uh, sort of infallible yourself, right? So you could even still succumb to temptation. You can't do that and be entirely sanctified. But it's possible to be one who has experienced complete freedom from sin and then 
Wesley would call that backsliding. It's possible to, to fall away from it. Um, the, the image that comes to mind for me that I've, I just want to share with you because I think it's so beautiful is Wesley talked about, when he talked about entire sanctification, he talked about spiritual respiration. So he talked about, he has this image where he talks about the Holy Spirit breathes into us and we breathe back out, you know, obedience and love and praise. And that it's, so it's, it's entire sanctification looks like breathing, right? It's something that has to keep happening, right? Moment by moment. It's not like a sort of one-time cathartic experience that then you just live on the rest of your life, but that it's a momentary desperate dependence on the grace of God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the way that I would respond is that I think, I don't think that that Christians should offer to people sort of compromises or excuses for persisting in sin. Um, so Wesley talks about one who is in faith needs no longer sin. Um, but I also think that that the flip side is that, so I push really hard on how powerful, right, what God has done in Christ is, but not to say that sin is not incredibly powerful. It's just not more powerful. Um, and that our own, so Wesley, you know, the, the sort of TULIP acronym for five-point Calvinism, the T stands for total depravity, and Wesley's all the way with Calvin on total depravity. Uh, and so he has a sense that, that we're, we really are very broken, and left to our own devices, we love that which is not good, uh, and we will that which is not good. Um, but that he thinks that grace is available to everybody and that grace can, can, is the solution, can change everything. So I, I would say that I, I think that, it's, that it is possible for someone to experience entire sanctification at the moment of initial conversion. Um, part of it for Wesley is that he's, he's an empiricist and he sort of offers this to people, but he finds that that's not the normal experience. That, that sort of, I think the way he would put it is, providentially, this seems to be the way that God works in most people's lives, that they experience an initial victory. They sort of come back to discovering in a new way in Christ the seriousness of sin and its impact and its, its pull, um, and that they re-engage that with a new power that they didn't have before and then find a new, like, deeper level of victory. Um, so Charles Wesley, in a, a hymn that he wrote, I, this is one of my favorite phrases, oh, for a thousand tongues, he says he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. So that canceling sin is justification, but breaking the power of sin is, is sanctification and holiness. Yeah, go ahead, and then I saw a hand over here.
Yeah, I mean, I think First John is the place to to go for um, talking about the you know the, those who are in Christ don't sin. Um, but First John also seems to be engaging a community of practice um, that is actually there's an argument within the community about what what it looks like, and so there's some interesting nuances. If we say we haven't sinned, right, we make God out to be a liar, and the truth is not in us. Um, but if we sin, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will cleanse us from sin uh, and purify us from all unrighteousness. Um, so I, I think First John doesn't say like here's a dude who's done that, but it's a community that's that's talking about this and, and claiming that this is um, who God is. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, the way that I would put it is, is it does make sense. I, the way I would put it is I would say that um, when, I'm, when I'm preaching or when I'm teaching, right, I'm going to go for the ideal. I'm going to go for what I think God's best is. That's what I'm going to offer, right? I'm not going to overly hedge, in part because I, I remember a professor of mine saying once, and I actually am not, I'm not sure that she herself actually really believed in entire sanctification as possible for her own life. I mean, it was an interesting moment. And, but she, she said she teaches on it because when people, she's like, when people read these passages, they oftentimes tend to experience entire sanctification. So it was this weird, like, kind of struggle within herself um, over that. And, but I thought there was a wisdom there that, that when we bring people back to these testimonies of what God has done in their life, the spirit oftentimes seems to connect people. There's almost a current there um, that that connects them to a deeper awareness of I want that too, right? I don't want a life that's just a, a life of, of futility. But then I think that there's a challenge that there's also a place pastorally. I think that speaking in abstracts only gets us so far, and I think that there's a a, a need for shifting into a mindset of looking at the person who's in front of you who's asking questions about their own life, right? And how does our theology enable us to engage the person who says with their words that they really want to live for Christ but finds in their life time and time again that their actions betray what they say they want um, and that that, so that there is a, a sort of tension within the varieties of experiences that people have. I think that for me, I often want sort of something that's really clean and neat and all the pieces fit together really well. Um, but I think that in part of what I think is amazing about God is that God is able to recognize the, the varieties of our own experiences, the varieties of our own brokenness, and the sort of deceitfulness of sin and the way that it sort of tr- keeps trying to kind of get back into our lives in different ways. 
Uh, and so how do you sort of enter into, right, the person's life? I don't want to have a theology that makes it impossible for someone to have been who they already have been and still have hope for, for grace and ongoing uh, repentance and, and new life and, and moving forward. I think that's the, the challenge. Yeah. Please do. Yeah, I think I think that it's helping people. Um, I mean, so part of part of my challenge in some ways is what I would say. If in a context like this, what I would say, if you weren't already meeting in band meetings and confessing sin, I would say like revival would come here, and I think I guess what I would say is that it would come through a, a deeper kind of humility and and honesty um, before God, but that revival would come through people coming to God, and not only in privacy, right, but a humility that's public in some way, um, and saying, and not necessarily, I don't, I don't want to overdefine this, but, but confession of sin, I think, is a sort of catalyst for revival, um, because it's, it's such a basic thing in saying, I'm not enough, but I believe that there's one who is able, right, to do in me what I can't do in myself, and I think there's something about that that outward action that is, right, seems to be a, a, a spark that, it, that sort of unpredictably leaps from one person to the other and makes possible for you to do something that didn't seem possible for you until you saw God do something in me, right? That, um, because my experience is that, that one of the hardest things for people is just admitting that they've screwed up. Right, that, that that can be so difficult for people. That first step of just saying, like, I was wrong. Um, and that the more wrong what the person has done seems to them, the harder it is to take that first step. Um, and so part of it is part of the challenge that, that I think the church faces is helping people to take off these heavy yokes that they're carrying that God's not asking them to bear anymore, right? He wants to take from them and to release them from but because they just can't bring themselves to own and to say I was wrong, right, to confess what they've done, they just keep limping around and carrying this this weight. I saw some somebody over here. Yeah, that's a great question. I, what I would do is I would, um, if I was starting a new church, I would start with an expectation that part of being a member of the church is being in a small group. And I would pitch that at the level of the class meeting, that it's, it's, not, it's not hardcore accountability, but it is a place where, because I, I think the key thing, that the first step for people who are considering Christ, who are you know interested in the gospel, who God is doing something but hasn't, they haven't yet come to faith, is just teaching them to ask habitually this question, what is God doing in my life? And helping them to be attentive to that. Because when you ask that question, you start to notice that God is doing things that you weren't noticing when you weren't asking the question. So that's where I would start. 
Uh, and then what I would do is to watch for the sort of bright eyes, the people who are getting it. And when people, and I would, I would preach this and, and sort of talk about it in the abstract, um, then I would want to make available for people to, to go deeper, right? To be able to have uh, the chance to then take the next step and sort of see that as a process. Um, and a, and a, you didn't quite ask this, but I think, you know, some of you will pastor existing churches that don't have this as a part of their culture. And what I would say is I would preach it boldly and passionately, make the best case for it that you can, and then I would look at the people who respond, right? The, the biggest mistake I made in my three years in local church ministry was that I put too much time and energy into people who didn't want to be mature Christians, um, and I would invest myself unapologetically, if I could do it all over again, in the people who wanted to grow in their faith. And I would say, you know, you guys, I'm not coming to the committee meeting that's talking about the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. You guys can have that meeting. You can figure that out. I don't care about that. I'm going to go to these two people, right, who are wanting to figure out how God is helping them take the next step in their faith. Um, one more question, and then I think I'm out of time, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, I think there's, there's two approaches. One is to, to just talk to the leadership about this is something that's on my heart um, and to ask them if, if you can have a chance to, to just sort of issue a call, right? This is something I'd love to do. Can, um, can I extend an invitation if people are interested to join me in that? Um, the, the other piece is I think, you know, the gospel oftentimes works really well underground, you know, and sort of less institutionalized ways. And I think it's always awesome to just sort of see yourself as a missionary in whatever community, whether it's in a church or whether it's in the, the outside of the church, and to just look for people who seem, seem like they would benefit from a deeper connection and just to engage them and say, hey, I want to start a small group that meets in my house. And um, would you like, you know, I think you'd be great to be a part of it. Would you be interested? I think either, either way is, is awesome. I'm out of time.